where you've been, uh, you've been in a place and then suddenly you're in that place and you're like, okay, I think I might be in the wrong place. I came for, you know, this movie, but actually this movie's playing or I came in for this talk and I think this is actually another talk and some of you might experience that here, right? Because we are making a significant and seismic shift. So I would just want to acknowledge that. Um, you know, going from talking about depression and anxiety and just how the Lord draws near to us in that for four sessions. And then suddenly, uh, you know, it's like we've gone from like, you know, Vivaldi to like, you know, rap music. You know, it's like, it might feel a little bit jarring. So just buckle up and prepare. And also know that this is, the, the talk that I'm giving on tackling sexual sin in marriage is typically a part of a little bit of a larger training that I do from my marriage counseling book. But uh, as Pastor Andrew and I were talking, uh, for those of you who are involved in marriage mentoring or marriage counseling, we thought because this is becoming, unfortunately, more and more of a prevalent topic, that this uh, could be potentially of help. So the aim of this talk, I would say, in terms of audience, is primarily oriented towards helpers and caregivers. Uh, if you are struggling with pornography in marriage, if you're struggling with sexual sin, you will be able to get help. You will be able to draw certain principles. But the more, I would say that the, the thrust of this session, at least as we've structured it, is more um, for the helpers, premarital counselors, marriage mentors, just couples in the church that want to offer good and godly help. So let's, let's ask ourselves this question. Why even talk about sexual sin in marriage, right? In many places culturally, exploring sexual areas of fulfillment outside of your spouse is not only accepted, it's actually recommended. Uh, I know several therapists and several counselors, several organizations who would say, hey, no big deal. Sexual, you know, activity outside of marriage, looking at pornography, uh, having extra relationships or extramarital affairs, it's, it's not a big deal at all. And in fact, uh, recently an article came out in The Guardian and uh, a therapist was talking about the positive role that adultery can play in a marriage. And they said, well, oftentimes there are needs that are going unmet in the marriage. And so one of the ways that you can get your needs met is go having an affair. And having that affair and going outside, that's going to tell your spouse, hey, you need more from them, right? The, the wisdom of the world is so upside down than what we see the wisdom from Scripture. And so when we're even talking about this topic in so many ways, we're already in so much of a different camp than many of our counterparts. The reason why we are talking today, friends, about sexual sin in marriage is because sexual sin breaks the covenantal intimacy of the marriage relationship, which is designed to be a witness to the gospel. That is why we're talking about sexual sin. It's not because we just want to have marriages be porn free. It's not just because we don't want spouses cheating on one another. That is actually a lesser goal. The reason why we're talking about this today, and I'll repeat it again, is because sexual sin in marriage breaks the covenantal intimacy of the marriage relationship, which is designed to be a witness to the gospel. That's why we're talking about it. And, and friends, listen, if that's not at least the vantage point that you're coming into it today, then the stakes are going to feel quite meaningless, right? So, okay, so, so the answer is just stop looking at porn. Well, that's, that's not where we're headed, right? There are a lot of marriages, and, and hear me rightly, there are a lot of marriages where there's not sexual sin. There's a lot of marriages, there's a lot of unbelievers out there who are sexually faithful to one another but they are not living out the message of the gospel, right? And so the reason why we're talking about this and what really is at stake is the role and the place that marriage holds within God's redemptive program. In Genesis 2, 24 through 25, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And Paul, picking up on this in Ephesians 5.32, he says, This mystery, talking about marriage, is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So that, friends, I just want to say that at the outset. That's why we're talking about this important issue that many couples face today. And so we're going to talk about one of the most common sexual areas or common sexual sins in marriage, and that is the discovery of pornography in marriage. Now, there are a whole lot of other areas where sexual sin occurs, uh, where adultery is taking place, extramarital affairs, and there's a whole variety of other ways that this can get worked out. But uh, for the benefit of our time together today, we'll primarily locate it with pornography. 
when pornography is discovered in a marriage relationship, uh, it is a seismic event uh, for most couples. Uh, being prepared for the level of crisis and upheaval, the destabilization that takes place when pornography is either disclosed, confessed, or discovered, uh, upends couples. I've never met a couple in marriage counseling, and that's the majority of what I do, where something like this is just like a blip on the radar. Right? I've never had a wife come to me and say, oh, like, my husband's struggling with porn and looking at porn. It's not really a big deal. Quite the opposite. This is a discovery, a disclosure, a confession that has the potential and has the chance to completely destroy and tear apart a marriage relationship. And so the movements that we take, the things that we do as helpers, as marriage counselors, marriage mentors, marriage disciples, however you want to self-title yourself, how we care for people in the midst of this is so crucial, it's so important. And so the question that we're asking ourselves here at the front end is, what do we do then when sexual sin is discovered or disclosed in marriage? And so again, what I am envisioning here is that in whatever role you're in, maybe you're in a small group, a Bible study, or in a more formal role, a spouse is coming to you, uh, maybe a friend of a spouse, and that individual is coming and disclosing, confessing to you, hey, I'm struggling with pornography. I've been looking at pornography in marriage. And so I'm trying to take you from that point of disclosure and confession of what are some of our initial goals. So what are some initial goals when that sexual sin is disclosed? The first thing, and again, this isn't going to surprise any of us, is we want to be patient and we want to listen to the details of the situation being prepared that the story will shift and morph over time. One of the things that can be difficult for a lot of people who are mired in pornography is that they've been mired and stuck in it for quite a long time. And so what happens is that level of exposure to pornography, we'll talk about a little bit later, physically does something. It does something to your brain. And one of the ways I think it affects your brain and it affects you spiritually is that the way that you tell your story, the way that you share what's going on, oftentimes uh, it's very confusing. It's very scattered. The details uh, can be very disordered. Timelines can be disordered. And so when we hear a story, we like to hear, okay, this happened and this happened and this happened. But people who are stuck and who are struggling in sexual sin, oftentimes uh, details of the story will change, certain things about their story will change. And I just tell people, you, you need to be prepared for that level of, I call it progressive revelation, just that the ongoing disclosure of the story oftentimes morphs and changes over time. Uh, your role, I think, in some of those initial conversations is focused on listening and offering real hope, real hope that is grounded in the gospel, rather than quick solutions or quick fixes. Uh, I will tell you that in the work that I do with uh, people who are stuck in sexual sin, they already know pretty much most of the things that you will tell them. Uh, accountability partners, read your Bible, go to church, get an internet filter, cut HBO Max, and be more accountable for your time. I mean, in imagine permutations of that. They've heard that. So if our initial movement into some of these situations is we see a problem and immediately we hop to a solution, I think we oftentimes miss out on an opportunity to see the wider, bigger problem. When we're thinking and receiving this disclosure, one of the first things that I'm trying to also do is to find out who else has this information been disclosed to. A lot of times the person might be coming to you and they might be saying, hey, I've not told my spouse. My spouse doesn't know. Or maybe you'll be in some situations where the spouse does know, and that's the whole reason why they're having the conversation with you. So assessing very early on kind of who's on first, saying, okay, who have you told? What have you told? And who also needs to be in the know? right? Especially if the spouse uh, doesn't know, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, what are some thoughtful uh, ways that we can disclose sexual sin to our spouse? Trying to find out as early as is possible who knows what is going to be an important part of the process, and an important part, I would say, of the ongoing counseling and mentoring process. A full disclosure, I will say this, when we're looking for information and we're when we're looking for disclosure in confession, full disclosure does not mean telling graphic sexual details of what has been viewed. And so there are different schools of thought on that where some people would say, well, no, we need to know everything that's being viewed and seen and done. 
Uh, I tend to be more on, uh, I would say, I want generals with specifics. I want to know general details with specifics that will help me, but I don't need to know every single thing that you are looking at, viewing, and watching. And in, in actual fact, I think in often case, in, in a lot of cases, that disclosure of certain details uh, for you as an individual can be potentially triggering, right? If you've struggled with pornography, if you have a history of sexual sin, sometimes just the retelling of some of those details can be unhelpful to you. And so don't feel afraid to say, you know what, let's, let's pause there. I don't I actually don't think that that detail is relevant or germane to our conversation. So why don't we just kind of push pause there and let me ask you another question. I've done that a number of different times. Uh, so again, oftentimes for the person who's disclosing or confessing, um, I kind of call it the verbal vomit. They feel actually a high in unburdening themselves and coming out of the darkness. And so there's this desire to just kind of like share and say everything uh, that has been going on. And so again, trying to kind of pull back in trying to pace out the amount of information that gets shared, uh, I think is an important step early on in the process. Another thing to understand is that repentance uh, cannot be rushed. Repentance cannot be rushed. I think a lot of times, and I get this a lot of times from pastors, I'll, I'll meet with a couple or I'll meet with an individual uh, for like two sessions, and the question that I'll get from well-meaning pastors is, well, are they repentant? Are they repentant? Can they be restored? Because the end goal is not necessarily that individual's sanctification and growth, but it's the reconciliation of the marriage relationship. Now, is the reconciliation of the marriage relationship good? Absolutely. But an individual cannot be reconciled to their spouse if they have not first been reconciled to God. And you cannot be reconciled to God if there are still ongoing patterns of sexual sin in your life. And so that dynamic of are they repentant, I think sometimes, especially in Christian circles, there's an immediate push to, after a few sessions, well, you've sought forgiveness, you've repented, you're not going to do that anymore. Okay, great. Let's talk about rebuilding trust, getting forgiveness from your spouse, and having a happy marriage. But understanding that repentance is a process that has tangible characteristics, both volitional, cognitive, emotional, and relational characteristics to it, is an important part of our mentoring and counseling process. So if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, where Paul talks about the Corinthians' repentance, about what does godly sorrow that leads to repentance, what does that look like? Paul gives seven different details about that. And then he talks about a worldly sorrow that leads to regret, right? A lot of times, pornography strugglers, uh, people who are struggling with sexual sin, the immediate impact of what you get, I find, is more of a worldly sorrow. It's a worldly sorrow of, I'm caught, um, my wife is upset with me, uh, relationship is broken, uh, now people know things about me. It's a worldly sorrow that ultimately leads to regret, not a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You could read a passage like James 4, 7 through 10, where James leads out 10 different characteristics of what godly repentance looks like. You could turn to Psalm 51, where in David's great psalm of repentance, there are key parts of what true authentic repentance looks like. If you are doing a lot of marriage counseling or individual counseling and you have more questions about this, uh, Darby Strickland, who is a counselor at CCF who uh, does a lot of work in this area, has written a phenomenal journal article called How to Discern True Repentance When Serious Sin Has Occurred. And I think that that's in your handout. Uh, but you can uh, go to CCF's website, look that article up. But that article uh, is incredibly helpful to uh, really begin to ascertain and think through some of those questions. Uh, with repentance. Uh, another thing is to set realistic goals and timelines. Set realistic goals and timelines. I'll tell you this, most uh, people that I counsel that are mired in sexual sin and patterns of sexual sin typically like processes and timetables. Uh, they're typically thinking and they feel relieved that a confession or a disclosure has been made. So they're beginning to think in timetables of, okay, so how long do I need to be in counseling? Uh, how long am I going to be in the basement on the bedroom before we can come back together? Uh, how long do I have to keep meeting with you? And what they want is they want a checkbox or they want a timeline of things that they need to do. And so one of the things I try to do up front is set a more realistic pace to say, you know what, I'm actually not sure. And the reason why I'm not sure is because I'm sensing that there are going to be more details that probably come out from this story. And so I want to be thoughtful about what goals we set and what timelines we establish. Because I will tell you, I would say 90% of the time, additional details are going to come out. 
Because sexual sin is all about hiding, because sexual sin is all about retreating inward and in living a double life, there are going to be aspects, I think, sometimes that they're not even aware of, that they've been engaged or involved in, uh, that, that aren't going to initially come out in that disclosure. And so allowing a healthy and a robust amount of time uh, in this process, I think, is incredibly important. If you just immediately say, well, hey, we're going to do this, and here's this goal, uh, someone is going to especially find themselves at the front end of this process highly motivated. And then what happens is, as a counselor, as a marriage mentor, you read that high amount of motivation from a positive viewpoint. You read it as, oh man, they, they really want to get to work on this. They, they, they really want to try. But then in week six, when the relationship between them and their spouse is still struggling, when trust still has not been restored and they start to get upset and irritable and frustrated and start to turn on you, you realize, oh, okay, this actually wasn't godly sorrow that leads to repentance. This was a worldly sorrow that just led to regret. So be thoughtful about how you set those timelines and those goals. Finally, uh, be prepared for a roller coaster of emotions. And this is more, I would say, for the offended spouse. And I, I, I should make one caveat here too. You, you're hearing me almost always use masculine pronouns when I'm talking about the person who's stuck in sexual sin because predominantly that's, that's the dynamic that's happening. It's men in marriage. That does not mean that sexual sin is exclusively for men only, not women. I've seen many cases where the woman has been the one that's been stuck in sexual sin. But just for sake of the conversation, uh, more often than not, I'll use masculine pronouns to describe uh, the offender uh, in, the, in the relationship. So when we're thinking about the person who has been offended, uh, one of the things that I try to tell counselors or people who are working with uh, the spouse, the wife, is just help them prepare for a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, Cindy Beal in particular highlights one emotion that doesn't oftentimes get highlighted, and that's the, that's the process of grief. She says, encourage them to grieve. They have experienced a death, the death of a dream, a commitment, and a trusting marriage. They are in immense pain, and honestly, the last thing they want to do is to feel the pain, but they must. In order to heal through the paralyzing agony that they are living in, they have to grieve. They must ache and weep and lament. Help them understand that this is a part of the journey. If they try to go around the pain and ignore it altogether, it will be waiting for them on the other side. This is not fun, but it is absolutely necessary. And there will be a lot of other emotions and feelings that get experienced, especially from the perspective of the wife. But that aspect of grief is something I think as Christians and as counselors, we don't talk a lot about, right? You, you have a happy marriage. They've been married for 25 years and suddenly this husband's sexual sin comes out and he's been visiting prostitutes and massage parlors for the past 10 years of their marriage, right? There's a grief there, right? Of how then do I understand the past 10 years of our relationship? Has all that been a lie? Do you really love me? Uh, do you really care about me? Is this all fake? Right? All of these questions and many more immediately come to the forefront for the offended spouse. And so part of the way that we can come alongside them is to say, man, that is really horrible. I cannot imagine how you feel right now. Let's go to the Lord. Let's cry out to the Lord about this hurt and this pain that you're feeling. So those are some of those initial goals that you are looking for when sexual sin is disclosed. Uh, I've also included there for you, what are some questions to ask when sexual sin is discovered or disclosed? And again, these are just questions. Uh, I wouldn't recommend that you just like, you know, tear off this page, come into a session and just, you know, tick them off one by one. These are questions that need to be put in your own vernacular. But I will say this, that when it comes to sexual sin, we tend to be more general than we do specific. And what happens then is we actually open up opportunities for people to not come fully clean, to not fully and openly confess, right? Have you ever been in an accountability, I'm speaking specifically to guys, right? Um, have you ever been in accountability groups or Bible studies and somebody says, yeah, so how many of you struggled this week? You know, and it gets kind of quiet, and we all know that struggle in general means something about pornography, but we don't want to say it or be specific. And, you know, Bobby says, yeah, you know, I kind of messed up. I struggled this week. And, yeah, you know, I, I, I did too. I struggled this week. And everybody kind of goes around and says and nods, and then, you know, the small group leader's like, yeah, man, we all, man, we all struggle, right? And then we move on to another topic, right? 
there's a fear sometimes of getting specific. There's a fear sometimes of asking questions because we ourselves have a level of discomfort, right? So if you have a level of discomfort with asking some of these questions, my encouragement to you would be to just practice certain things that we've already talked about earlier. Practice regulating your breathing, practice regulating being awkward, uh, being calm in awkward situations, realizing that sometimes we actually are feeling more awkward about a situation than is actually the case, right? So you might be afraid to say the word masturbation, you might be afraid to say the word sexual sin or pornography, and so what that can limit you from being able to do is to actually get the accurate information that you need. And so what you do is you speak in generalities of, hey, how's the struggle? Uh, how are you doing? And you kind of just like look at them, you know, expecting them to offer you up a specific answer. And so don't be afraid to ask specific questions. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, a man of understanding, right? A man of understanding can draw out the purposes of another's heart. So again, I've asked a number of, uh, given you samples of a number of different questions that you can ask, especially related to sexual sin. And again, depending on the strength of the relationship, some of these you might already know because you're in a relationship with them, but uh, other times uh, there might be additional information that comes out as you begin to ask this question. Uh, sometimes you'll ask one question and then you'll keep asking and you just keep getting more and more. And so a lot of times one of my favorite questions that I'll ask is I'll say, you know, you know Bobby, is there anything else that I need to know as it pertains to this situation that you have not told me? And that's kind of like my blanket, like catch all, like I'm a lawyer kind of dotting my I's and crossing my T's. Is there anything that you need to tell me right now that you've not disclosed to me that would help me better care for you and help you in this situation? One of the keys, and again, I even hate having to bring this up, but in my experience, it's something that is becoming more and more prevalent. I do ask if the pornography involves minors. Uh, everybody, regardless of where you live, is a mandatory reporter when a minor is being sexually abused. If that has happened, you need to immediately call and make a report. All of us are mandatory reporters for the sexual abuse of a minor. Um, and so that is something where we don't, you know, make two phone calls and do our own forensic investigation. We don't put out a poll on Facebook of, hey, this has happened and crowdsource information. Uh, the legal statutes are clear in every state that you are a mandatory reporter. So again, it's a conversation that is hard to have, but I think as people who are entrusted with the care of God's people, it's a question uh, oftentimes that we must ask. Also, towards the end there, you see some questions about has the physical involvement crossed more than just pornography, but has it also involved another person? Uh, recently, I had a case where that had happened where uh, a guy passed on an STD to his wife. Uh, those are questions, again, that are uncomfortable to ask, but that need to be asked. If a person has had a sexual relationship with another individual, that person and that person's spouse needs to get tested for an STD. Um, those are just some basic questions then that you can kind of put in your back pocket. You can begin to think through what is a thoughtful way to ask some of these questions. There's also some broader and more focused questions that I've given there for you, just depending on the strength of the relationship, the nature of the relationship. Again, I'm trying to, I can't cover all my bases in terms of, is this relationship an official church relationship? Is it just a friend to a friend? Is it a leader to a congregant? Is it a, a relative to a relative? Which I would say this, I historically and traditionally try to discourage uh, relatives counseling one another in these situations. Like, oh, well, my brother is my accountability partner and he's gonna you know, help me navigate through this or a brother-in-law or uh, a dad. Uh, I think having an impartial, impartial person who's not related uh, tends to be a, a better fit overall uh, when these types of things happened. A more focused questions to ask in relationship to the individual's pornography use. Uh, you know, simple questions like, hey, tell me a little bit about how you first got involved with pornography. Uh, what does your engagement with pornography look like? I had one guy, I've had multiple people, again, tell me and use similar language, but coming out with completely different uh, experiences with pornography. So I had one guy say, you know, I look at pornography quite a bit. And I said, well, what does that look like? Tell me about that frequency. And it was once or twice a month. I talked to another guy who said, yeah, I look at pornography frequently and it was once or twice a day. So that looks very different from somebody answering that question and both of them saying yes to how often do you struggle with pornography 
frequently can mean something very different. Frequently might mean one or two times for one individual, and frequently can mean one or two times a day for another individual. So clarifying those terms, asking some of those follow-up questions are really important. Uh, when was the first time you were exposed to pornography? Uh, we're learning more and more that exposure to early pornography is happening at ages that are continuing to get younger and younger. Probably 10 or 15 years ago, the average age for exposure to pornography were in the early teens, 13, 14 years of age. Early exposure to pornography now is around seven or eight years old which is absolutely heartbreaking. And again, this is one of those areas where even the secular literature is bearing out that when we move into these areas of early exposure to pornography, again, it normally sets up for a trajectory and an engagement with pornography uh, later on in life. And so asking some of those questions, asking some of those questions about, hey, tell me about when was the first time you were exposed to pornography? Um, and then also a lot of times just asking them, can you remember what were some of the feelings or some of the experiences you had after you did that, after you were exposed to that. And you're going to get very familiar responses. I felt dirty. I felt embarrassed. I wanted to hide. I wanted to throw up. And so then helping them understand, again, some of these responses and some of these draws to pornography, there's patterns to it. There are patterns to what you seek out, how you seek it out, and how frequently uh, you seek it out. Questions like, do you go through any, I call them atonement style exercises? Uh, a lot of times after guys in particular will view pornography, they go through this cycle of uh, feeling very bad about it, feeling very guilty, making promises like, okay, that was my last time. I'm never gonna do it again. Uh, that's my last engagement with me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually get help. And then moving into something that makes it better, some type of atonement. So maybe they'll buy flowers for their wife or they'll take their wife out on a date or they'll do something. And what that action is meant to do, again, it's not really born out of love. It's not really born out of a desire to reconcile the marriage, but it's something to uh, kind of tamp down their feelings of guilt and shame. And so again, just helping them identify what are some of those cycles and patterns. What are some uh, additional issues to consider? And again, this is probably the biggest one uh, that we encounter when I'm counseling men uh, who've been caught in sexual sin. And that is the question of how much should be confessed to the spouse? How much should be confessed to the spouse? And I will say upfront uh, that you might get different feedback on this based on other people that you talk to, respected people uh, that you talk to. I think this is one of those issues where there's gonna be a variety of opinions that within uh, God's economy of wisdom that different people might arrive at different conclusions. But what I would say is that the issue needs very thoughtful and very careful consideration. A large number of men, I find, will want to go through the motions of expressing contrition and remorse about their behavior before they've actually done the hard work to understand where those behaviors came from. And what happens then is it creates a dynamic in the relationship that I think eventually can become very manipulative. So a husband will say, I just wanna tell my spouse, I wanna to confess to her, and there's a lot of emotion and a lot of feeling behind it. I can't believe I did this. I'm just such, I am a, I'm a horrible person. I don't even deserve to have you. And what does the wife do? She feels bad for him. She wants to give him a second chance. And so the husband can short circuit the process of doing heart work, which is hard work, because he just kind of verbally vomits, offers up some godly sorrow, the wife, perceptively takes him back and forgives it and good, I'm done and move forward. And so again, I'm not saying that God can't use a situation like that to move the relationship forward, but a lot of times you're gonna get yourself stuck in a habit and a cycle that ultimately is not helpful. And so when we're thinking about confession and repentance, one of the very first things that I'm asking spouses is this, what have you confessed before the Lord? What have you talked to the Lord about as it relates to your sin? I would say for most people that I talk to and struggle or that, that struggle, uh, they don't talk to God. Their first instinct is saving the marriage. Their first instinct is saving face. Their first instinct is, I don't want my kids to find out. I don't want people at church to find out. And I'll say, listen, have you talked to the Lord about this? Have you gone before the Lord? Have you bared your heart before the Lord? Have you said, uh, again, in a Psalm 51 uh, motion, against you and you only have I sinned. Have you done that? And if a person has not been able to do that, I try to push pause on any other type of horizontal confession or disclosure. 
as it relates to what the wife needs to know or what she needs to uh, have by way of disclosure, uh, some wives want and desire a full confession. They want to know what happened, details, context, what was viewed, where was it viewed, who did you talk to, uh, and then some spouses don't want anything. Like I've had spouses say, I don't want to know anything. I don't want to know about anything that he saw. I just want you to take care of it as his counselor and just tell me what I need to know, but I don't need to hear from him. And I think on both of those, if those are maybe the extremes of both of those sides of either wanting to know everything or wanting to know nothing, there's probably a helpful middle of there's a level of information and content that I think probably needs to be disclosed to the spouse, but then there's also sometimes too much information that gets shared that then mentally implants images, scenarios, and thoughts into the wife's mind that then later on proves to be very difficult for them to overcome. And again, that's just a part of us being embodied beings. We have memories, we have brains, we have brains that take in cognitive information. And so in an effort to quote unquote, fully divest ourselves or divulge everything, we can actually elongate the process of healing and reconciliation because too much information has gotten shared. I've included links there for you. Uh, two articles by counselor and pastor Dave Dunham. He has uh, two articles that I found to be really helpful. One is what not to confess to your spouse. He gives some different guidelines and then how to confess temptation and sexual sin to your spouse. Again, on the electronic document, those are hyperlinks that you could just click. One of the ones that I did not include because it actually just came out this week um, in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, which is the journal that CCEF releases, uh, Alistair Groves, who's the executive director, has an article called, uh, What Should I Tell My Spouse About Sexual Sin? And uh, I was like, Alistair, why didn't this come out you know, a few months ago and I could have included it? But uh, I would encourage you, if this is uh, a lot of the work that you do in marriage counseling, uh, that article is incredibly helpful and will be of use to you. So that first half, kind of really helps shape out what are some of the initial goals, some of the triage things that you're looking to do for the offender, for the person who is struggling. And what I want to do now is make a little bit of a pivot to say, okay, what do we do though with the spouse? How do we help the wife? I will tell you that in marriages, the most neglected person in the relationship typically is the wife. A lot of the energy gets focused on the husband for apparent reason, right? He, his sin's the most obvious. It's the one that we have to deal with. It's kind of like the triage of immediately caring for him. And sometimes we just expect the wife to just navigate this pain and this suffering on her own. And so my encouragement to you, to those of you who are walking alongside wives is, please don't leave out the wife. Please don't neglect the care of the wife who has been sinned against through her husband's sexual sin. So number one, Again, I'm repeating myself, but don't forget that there's another party involved in the discovery of sexual sin. Again, we sometimes focus on the offending spouse and we forget the offended spouse, the spouse who has been sinned against. So make sure that you attend to that. Make sure that you offer up opportunities for care and for counseling. Number two, don't blame the spouse for their spouse's sexual sin. Now, friends, this might sound obvious to, me, to you, but I have heard very well-meaning Christians shift the blame for their husband's sexual sin back onto their spouse. Uh, I had one uh, counselee come to me and he said, well, well, my pastor said, if I'm not getting fed in the bed, it's okay for me to look at pornography. And I said, that's absolutely not true, right? That is absolutely not true. That is not biblical. Your sexual sin, the spouse's uh, sexual sin is not to be pushed over to the offended spouse. And so when we're counseling, when we're caring for her, uh, we have to be really thoughtful in our conversation to make sure that we don't join and make that connection of, well, if you just did X, or if you just did Y, or if you weren't so frigid, or if you weren't so cold shoulder to him, then he wouldn't have to do this. Does that mean that the offended spouse is perfect and has no sin? No. But what we're saying is that she is not directly responsible for her spouse's sexual sin. Number three, counsel spouses who find themselves, I call on the spectrum of indifference to investigator. And this goes a little bit previously to what we talked about of how do we handle the disclosure. Some spouses 
become private investigators. I've had spouses spend hours culling through their husband's emails. They download Life360 onto all of the devices. They're monitoring when he comes home from work, what he's doing, where did you eat lunch, who did you talk to? And again, I always tell spouses, I understand why you're doing that. I understand you feel betrayed. You have been betrayed. But the movement in the midst of that betrayal is now I can do something to prevent myself from getting hurt again by finding out every single piece of information. I've had other spouses move onto that other side of just they're completely indifferent. Uh, They'll say things, well, let me know when you're better. Let me know when you've got it together. Let me know when you're ready to talk. And they completely disconnect from their spouse. And so again, both of those extremes, I think, ultimately are not going to be helpful. And you as a marriage mentor and a counselor are helping them navigate, again, what is that via media? What is that thoughtful way of wisdom? And number four, understand what is in your control and what is not. Again, uh, when this disclosure is made, oftentimes the spouse immediately wants to begin to control things that ultimately are not within their control. Uh, their spouse's accountability partner, their spouse's counseling, uh, the internet usage, technology usage, where they're going, how many hours a day they're doing this, that, or the other. And what can happen is there can now be a sense of, listen, I wasn't in control and I was blind to a lot of things that happened and they kind of internalize some of that sense of responsibility. And so then the movement and reaction is, okay, well, I'm never going to let that happen again. So it can be an over-responsibility and overreaching of control. I try to help spouses who have been offended just check their own motivations for looking, uh, for investigating, for asking questions, right? Are you hoping to discover something to prove a point? Or is the investigation or is the queries or the question asking, is it ultimately oriented towards a genuine desire to help your spouse? Uh, I had one spouse who uh, eventually asked her spouse, her husband, to take a lie detector test. She said, I can't trust you. I can't trust anything that you tell me. I need this peace of mind. She said, you have to take this lie detector test. He ended up taking it and he passed. And I asked her later, I said, well, how do you think that's helped you? And she immediately said, she goes, I don't know. She goes, I think that there's a way that you can trick lie detector tests. I think that there's a way that you can get false positives. And I just said, I, I go, friend, I understand why you're after this. But, but if you're placing your hope and your trust in, in this, in finding that right answer or getting positive results for a lie detector test, ultimately it removes an opportunity to trust in the Lord to rest in the Lord's care for you, his sovereign watching over you, the reality that God is a righteous judge and he will hold everyone accountable for their actions. If you really trust that, it doesn't mean that you just pull back and throw up your hands and say, okay, whatever. But what it does is it can temper this sometimes drive to find out and to get information. That really takes us to the next point. I try to encourage spouses who have been offended to really meditate on the promises of God. Uh, God sees everything. He knows everything. And in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, it says that God will bring all things to light in his timing. And I think that promise of God brings a lot of comfort for spouses who have been offended and sinned against by their spouse's sexual sin. They say, listen, my timetable is not necessarily God's timetable. But what I do have a confidence in is that at the end of the day, God is going to bring all things to light. So the, the million dollar question that spouses want to know is, is he telling me everything? Is there more to the story? Do I have all of the facts? And a lot of times they'll be looking at you to affirm that or to not affirm that. And I simply have to say, I don't know. I don't know. I've met a lot of people who are really great liars, who I have thought in the moment, you know what, you were telling me everything. And I find out five months later that what they've been telling me is a lie. And I don't beat myself up about that. I just acknowledge I'm not God. I can't see perfectly into their hearts. But what I do have a confidence in is a God who does see perfectly, a God who does know perfectly. Uh, Help a spouse realize that no amount of external accountability will ultimately change a person's heart. Uh, I will say that most spouses, their typical go-to is cutting off the access, the access point, and then getting accountability. So when we think about A's, access and accountability, those are two big ways. And I'll tell people all the time, accountability purely based on checking in on someone's sexual sin does not work. I've seen it time and time again where the entire relationship being mediated on another person coming to the offender and just saying, hey, did you mess up again? 
that relationship maybe lasts a couple of weeks, at best maybe a couple of months. You cannot have a relationship where the entire relationship is only built on having a person ask you an accountability question. Relationships and friendships have to be built on Christ, on growing together in Christ, and accountability then becomes a piece of that greater relationship. One of the problems, though, for most men who are struggling with sexual sin is they don't have relationships. They're isolated. They don't have friends. They don't have mentors. They're not being discipled. And so getting an accountability partner is going to take a process. It's going to take time. It's going to take the time to develop a relationship. So understanding that no amount of external accountability ultimately can change the heart. That's something that only God can do. I've heard numerous stories where people just lie to their accountability partner. They uh, shade the truth with their accountability partner. They withhold certain aspects of the story. So that in and of itself doesn't guarantee that a person is growing and disclosing. Uh, Next, it's not wrong uh, for you to ask questions of your spouse, right? A lot of times uh, a husband will say, listen, when am I going to get out of the doghouse? When am I finally going to stop being in trouble? And I try to push back gently on those kind of questions because, again, what's happened is he wants to repent, quote-unquote. He wants to uh, make it look like uh, he wants to reconcile, but when it comes time to actually face the consequences of that sin, right, there can be the sense of irritation or the sense of, well, you're not really forgiving me. Forgiveness does not equal the erasure of consequences. A reconciliation does not equate to the erasure of any type of consequences uh, to the actions that you've taken. And so a spouse is entitled to be able to say, hey, like, where were you? You've been gone for a half hour later than what you told me. Where were you, right? That's a legitimate question that spouses should be able to ask. Or, uh, hey, I've noticed that you are keeping your phone with you all the time and not leaving it in some of these spots. You know, what's going on? Well, it's my phone. I can't take my phone with me to the bathroom. I can't have the phone like in this desk drawer, right? Why are, why are you watching my every move? And again, helping them understand, well, no, she is able as a spouse to come to you and ask you these questions. Uh, ultimately, helping spouses uh, who have been offended understand that sexual sin comes from the heart and therefore understanding the motivation behind seeking out and engaging with pornography is important. Uh, this is fairly revolutionary for a lot of people who struggle with pornography or who are helping but pornography is typically a symptom of a deeper behavior that's going on below the surface. Pornography is the fruitfulness of a pursuit for something. Uh, Approval, affirmation, escape, validation, pleasure, escape from boredom, routine. There's a whole lot of reasons and motivations that actually simmer below the surface long before you ever get to pornography. And so again, those of you who counsel the struggler, if the main methodology simply is access, accountability, don't look at pornography, you could actually be letting a lot of the roots of that particular sin just morph and go into other ways. So I've had guys who don't look at pornography anymore, but they spend two hours at CrossFit in the gym every day, right? They've just simply redirected some of those impulses into different areas. So understand that pornography is rarely the root, but simply the fruit of something that's going on below the surface. Understand the difference between confession, disclosure, and true repentance. I'm not going to belabor that because we've already talked about that a lot, but I've also tried to include, again, some different resources there for you. Uh, Next, don't make big decisions in the aftermath. This is a huge one that I plead with spouses on. Again, in our post-Christian culture where marriage is a contract, not a covenant, when something like this happens, uh, you might make a decision of, oh, we're done. I'm getting a divorce or we're separating. Uh, Go live at your mom's uh, or whatever it might be. There is this instinct where we want to make big decisions, right? Uh, You've got to quit your job or you can't ever do this or have this or whatever it might be. And I try to encourage spouses and the strugglers uh, to really take time to process through these things with the help of trusted pastors, elders, counselors, and caregivers. Don't rush these decisions. Don't make big decisions in the aftermath. Uh, Tim Lane writes this. He says, rebuilding a relationship after infidelity, and again, he's thinking about infidelity and adultery, but I think it also is uh, true for pornography. He says, rebuilding a relationship after infidelity is not easy, but neither is dissolving one, particularly if there are children involved. Regardless of the choice to leave or to stay, it is wise to discourage a quick decision when emotions are running high. 
And again, lame there is just simply echoing the wisdom of Proverbs 19.2. Desire without knowledge is not good. Whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. Desire without knowledge is not good. And whoever makes haste with his feet misses his way. So just be thoughtful about that. And again, part of that dynamic then for the local church to come alongside and provide support, that's why that support is so crucial. Because what we're doing in that moment for the offended spouse is they're hurting, they're grieving, they're suffering. They want what feels like an escape from the pain. So if their husband is the pain point, separating away from him feels good, it feels right. And so to come alongside her and to say, hey, I understand, I understand what you're going through. I understand the pain that you're going through. But let's, let's push pause for, for, for two weeks so that we can really get to the bottom of this so we can understand what's going on before we make uh, some of these big decisions. Uh, finally, rebuilding trust takes time. Rebuilding trust takes time. The simple equation that I tell spouses in situations like this is that trust is built on trustworthy actions. Trust is built on trustworthy actions. It would be foolish for us to give trust to someone uh, who has not shown that they are a good steward of that, but it's also, I don't think, right for us to withhold trust from someone who is growing in godliness and in repentance. So how do we determine whether or not trust is growing in the relationship? It's through our behaviors. It's through our actions. It's through uh, embracing accountability. It's through following through on our commitments. It's making ourselves accountable or available for questions. It's making sure that we don't get irritable or irritated when we don't get what we want from our spouse. Trustworthy actions means that we are in the right place in the right time when we tell our spouse we're going to be at a certain place at a certain time, right? Trust gets built on trustworthy actions. I've included there for you some different links that you can go to from Brad Hambrick. Uh, Brad Hambrick is a pastor and a counselor as well uh, at the Summit Church, and he has some really helpful articles to help you navigate through rebuilding trust. And in particular, his uh, 10-step progression for restoring broken trust is something I use all the time in counseling. And essentially what Brad helps you do is to say, okay, trust is kind of one of those words that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So if you say, hey, do I trust my husband to pick up a loaf of bread from the store when he says that he's going to? Well, yeah, but I don't trust him because of what's happened to do X, Y, or Z. In kind of distinguishing through what we mean when we say trust and really clarifying that is really important, I think, for the ongoing health of the relationship after it's been torn apart by sin. Ultimately, at the end of the day, and again, this whole progression is something that's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of work on your part. Ultimately, uh, what I'm wanting husbands and wives to do is to write a new story grounded in the gospel where true biblical change and forgiveness has happened. Uh, one of my favorite stories, I love uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And in Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, after Edmund has betrayed his siblings, has gone over to the White Witch, he comes to Aslan. He comes to Aslan for forgiveness and for restoration. And there's this lovely moment where Aslan comes back out into the tent, comes out of the tent, rather, with Edmund and uh, Peter and Lucy and Susan. You know, they have these quizzical faces. They want to know, hey, what happened behind those closed doors? What, what went on between you and Aslan? And, and Aslan says, here is your brother Edmund. There is no need to speak to him of what is in the past. And it's a beautiful moment that just shows the clarity and the power of the gospel. There's nothing else, I think, that can deal with the pain and the betrayal of sexual sin more so than the power of the gospel. And so when we try to treat it superficially as simply, hey, do this or do that, and we miss out on what the greater goal is and what is really at stake, we miss out, again, even in the reconciliation and in the aftermath of sexual sin being disclosed, we miss out on an opportunity to have marriages display a powerful story of redemption and reconciliation and ultimately the power of the gospel. Uh, does that mean that there won't be ongoing temptations or battles? Well, no, of course not. That doesn't mean that once a person has repented that they're never going to sin again. But what forgiveness does mean is that there's going to be a new commitment moving forward to walk in the path of wisdom, to walk in the path of godliness. Andreas Kostenberger uh, writes this, and we'll kind of close our time uh, with this quote. 
He says, marriage and family are not exempt from the cosmic conflict that is raging between God and his angels on the one hand and Satan and his demons on the other. Because marriage and the family are not merely just human conventions or cultural customs, but divine institutions, it should be expected that Satan, the evil one, who seeks to rob God of his glory, would attack them. And for this reason, too, we must treat marriage and family not merely in the content of the current cultural crisis, but also within the framework of the perennial cosmic conflict that requires a spiritual perspective and skilled engagement of the enemy in spiritual warfare. And I think that that's just a very sobering but a very helpful reminder for all of us who are engaged in the work of caring for couples, right? There's a lot more that is involved and that's entailed than simply just having a spouse not look at pornography or just having a couple kind of live happily ever after. There's a wider, broader conflict that as caregivers, as counselors, mentors, uh, that we must have eyes to see. And so I hope that in some small way, this very brief overview has been helpful for you if you've encountered this in your counseling. There's a number of different resources, again, there that I've listed out for you. In my book, Counsel for Couples, I have individual chapters on this as well as adultery. Uh, two resources that uh, just came out last year that are very helpful. They're written by a husband and a wife team, Curtis and Jenny Solomon. Uh, Curtis talks very openly and honestly about his struggle with pornography. And he talks about his journey uh, through repentance and reconciliation. And again, oftentimes what happens is we only hear the guy's perspective. Jenny, his wife, has written a separate book for wives. Uh, she's written a book about what it has been like in her experience of being on the other side of that, being sinned against through her spouse's sexual sin. So uh, for those of you who are doing mentoring or couples counseling, uh, those have been really helpful resources for me to give one to the husband and then to give one to the wife. Again, there are some other um, there are some other resources there for you. Again, Brad Hambrick has two online courses that are really helpful, one for adultery, uh, not one for adultery, but one for uh, the offender and then one for the offended. And one of the nice things about Brad's content, number one, it's free, so uh, you can use it, pass it along, uh, but they're video-based. And so there's a series in each of those, in the false love and the true betrayal, there's a series of 13 videos. So for some of you who might be a little bit nervous at coming alongside spouses, Brad's material is set up to where uh, you could watch one of the uh, videos together. They're 15 to 30 minutes each. Watch the video and then work through some of the discussion questions. So all of these are different resources that I would commend to you and that I think would be helpful to you as you seek to come alongside couples and care for them. So uh, I hope that's been helpful. I'll be available afterwards for questions. And again, I'll reach out via email or other ways uh, if there's something that I can help clarify or I'll point you in the right direction of. But let me pray for us and we'll close out this final session of our time together. Uh, Father, we come to you at the close of this time and our hearts just, we mourn and we grieve. Uh, we grieve what sexual sin does to the covenant of marriage. And I would be surprised if there is not a person here who knows somebody, who knows somebody who's been in this position. And maybe, uh, maybe that's them, Lord. And so sometimes this... Uh, this topic can feel overwhelming. It can feel like there's no hope. Uh, but Lord, we know that we do have hope in the gospel. We do have uh, the hope of Christ, uh, which enables us uh, to uh, confess and to seek forgiveness, to reconcile and to rebuild trust. Lord, this, uh, this topic, this issue of sexual sin and marriage, this is not beyond your grace. Uh, this is not beyond the realm of uh, what you can do and what you can work in. And so, Lord, I do pray that if there are people who are struggling at Canyon or any of the other churches represented, Lord, would you bring those situations to light so that they can seek healing and help and get godly counsel. Lord, help them to, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, be convicted of their sin, to come out from the shadows and to uh, raise their hand in humility and to say, I need help. I need to talk to someone. And Lord, would the people who are assembled here today, Lord, would they have a confidence not necessarily in their own abilities, but a confidence in your word and in Christ to draw near and to offer words of help and comfort to them. And that we ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.